Okay, good morning. If we haven't met, I've met many of you. My name is Dale. I'm one of the pastor elders here at Redeemer, and I have the pleasure of serving you with the rest of the elder team and occasionally getting to preach in front of you. And, but this isn't my job. You know, this isn't, I don't, I don't, I'm not on staff at the church. I'm here plenty, but my, my job is actually, I work, work out in the work, workforce, like a lot of you. And I've had, um, much of that career has been kind of in the live event world, event production world. And uh, it's, that's brought me to some interesting events and situations. And one of these was from a previous employer I had where for several years I got a chance to host a table at a, at a dinner that is given to foreign consular generals in the city of Houston. And it's an event at which I'm usually very outclassed. And, but I get to wear my full uh, penguin outfit that I rented from Men's Warehouse and show up. And in the ballroom that we're, that we're in, there's something close to 40 tables at this event, each one hosting a different country. So you need to make sure that you're seated at the correctly assigned table uh, and what's worse, each table has assigned seats. In certain formal settings, including this one, it's actually customary to split up uh, all of the people that are coming, uh, split up the dates even, so that you're sitting opposite from the person that you came with across the table. They do this to encourage some kind of forced conversation, but it usually means that whenever I go, I have to look across the table for my assigned seat to my wife's assigned seat on the other end of the table. And she's usually, it's, there's usually through a large centerpiece and a lot of music in the background. And I have to try and make conversation with someone else's wife who is seated next to me. There was another time I was at an event before uh, where there's a lot of loud music playing and a stranger who I had never met before leans over to me and my wife and says, over the music, you two look like you're the kind of people who like to sit at home quietly. So this is, this is not exactly our favorite place to be, and it's less our favorite when we have to split up and sit across from each other. So throughout the night, I'm watching Christina make casual conversation with the person that we're hosting, and uh, I can't exactly hear anything they're saying, but, but things are going well. Christina's a good conversationalist, and, uh, but I can tell at some point, I look up and the conversation has taken a negative turn. And uh, previously, they'd been laughing and been cordial. And now that was ceased, and I saw Christina was just kind of looking around the room, and the counselor she was talking to was just sort of looking down at the table, not really talking to anybody. And so we had to wait for a break in the program before I could get over to my wife and say, what, what happened? Was I, was I just seeing something? Was I, was I imagining something? And she said, no, it, was, uh, it got kind of weird when he asked you know, what I did for a living and how we handle having four kids. And she said, I told them that we homeschooled. And he responded that he didn't know why anyone would ever do that. And that ended the rest of our conversation. And uh, because apparently the Germans look less kindly on homeschooling than many people in the United States. Uh, that said, she tried to get the conversation going again by bringing up COVID-19, but that didn't help. Uh, in our text today though, uh, all of that's funny. It's talk it was just kind of an awkward social environment, but we're, we don't need to understand some of the complexities and difficulties in a strange space like that to understand what Jesus is trying to say here. In fact, I don't believe his main goal is to give us advice on how to avoid embarrassment in social situations because nothing else in Jesus's ministry seems to indicate that he really cares about being embarrassed in social situations. It's not even on his radar. 
Uh, rather, I think he's speaking about deeper truths regarding how we regard ourselves, how we regard others, and then collectively, how we regard God in relation to those things. And at its root is the deception of pride, the stories that we tell ourselves uh, about who we are, the stories that the Pharisees were telling themselves about who they are, and uh, we will see this thing, pride, come up again and again in the lives of believers. John Stott said pride is the greatest enemy of the Christian. uh, C.S. Lewis says pride leads uh, to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been uh, the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And we'll talk more about it in a little bit, but that's even seen in the creation story with Adam and Eve. What is the cause of their rebellion? To be like God. God is holding out on you. Do this, you will be like him. So, we're gonna break this passage into three sections. The Lord compelled, the arrogant humbled, and the humble exalted. But before we begin, let's pray for our hearts for this this morning. So, Lord, we thank you for bringing us here, that in your mercy you have given us another day. I pray that in our own hearts this morning, please, the walls and the barriers that we put up that place us first, that give us, put us on our defense when you would convict us or when we would otherwise hear from you. Lord, we need you to tear those down because we often cannot. So I pray that you be present here and for the sake of your name and to the praise of your glory, you help us at the end of this short time to know you better, to worship you more. Why don't you pray for yourselves? Pray that the Lord would work on your heart, that you'd be receptive to whatever he's trying to say this morning. And then pray for me, just that my words would be right and true with scripture, that they would make sense We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time and ask that you would use it. It's in Christ's name, amen. So we'll start, verses one through six. One Sabbath, when he went to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. And to them he said, which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could find no answer to these things. Before we even go all the way into this text, I think we need to give ourselves a reminder of the context of Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees so far through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, It's not good. 
It's really easy to gloss over a, scripture, a sentence in scripture very matter-of-factly, like he went to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees. Oh, so was it just a nice casual dinner? Are the rulers in the synagogue close to Jesus at this point? Are they friends? What is Jesus's current relationship to the Jewish authorities and what is the cause of the invitation? So we can look at just a brief, brief series of the interactions Jesus has had with the Pharisees so far, including some of the other Sabbath occurrences. Uh, back in Luke 4, 16 through 30, Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. Uh, when he gets up, you might remember this in the, in the synagogue, he preaches from a text of Isaiah, says that this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing, and then sits back down, uh, basically saying the prophecy was about him himself. And what's interesting is everybody marveled at that part. All the crowds loved him. What they didn't like was that he then followed up, sensing their hearts and saying, you probably want me to do a miracle here like I did at Capernaum. Don't hold your breath. And so then they tried to throw him off a cliff. Good start. Uh, in chapter six, you see the Pharisees, they challenge Jesus and his disciples because they're walking through a field and you might remember they're picking off heads of grain and rubbing them in their hand and then eating them. And so they challenge him saying, you're working on the Sabbath. Jesus' response on this one is, don't you even remember when, when King David, he went into the house of the Lord, took the bread of the presence for himself and his friends? The son of man is Lord over the Sabbath, this is his response. Even then, that early on, he's telling them, those rules don't apply to me. But he keeps playing their game. In, in chapter six, six through 11, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue and heals a man with a shriveled hand. And he did this again while the Pharisees were, quote, watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus asked them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? To do e or to do evil, to save life or destroy it. And after he restored the man's hand, we're told the Pharisees started to plot what they could do to him. Most recently, chapter 13, Kevin preached on this one a couple weeks ago. Jesus healed a woman on the Sabbath. This is the woman who had a back that was bent for 18 years. And again, in the presence of the Pharisees. And either he hasn't learned his lesson or they haven't learned theirs. But Jesus challenges them saying, you care more for your livestock than you do for the household of faith and the family of Abraham. He calls them hypocrites. The end of that section tells us that all his enemies were humiliated and the whole crowd, but the whole crowd was rejoicing over the glorious things that he was doing. So just from these, we can already see there's a pattern going on here. Jesus is consistently and in the presence of the Pharisees healing and doing things that would bother them. Uh, and now, all of a sudden, he finds himself in the home of a Pharisee leader on the Sabbath, and wouldn't you know it, right there in front of him is someone who is suffering with edema who happens to be invited for dinner. Like, I'm not much of one for conspiracies, but there are, there are plenty of uh, textual commentaries that say that this was probably a forced situation. Uh, they were watching him closely and seeing what he would do, meaning it's very possible that this person who was sick was a plant. He was brought there literally to test Jesus, see what Jesus would do on the Sabbath. So, this is not a nice dinner. This is kind of an awkward and tense dinner. 
there is suspense in the air about what Christ will do. And the Pharisees are daring him to act. So why does he? Including this passage, we've seen Jesus give roughly four reasons, uh, theological reasons for why he heals or conducts work on the Sabbath. He asks if it's lawful to heal or, or lawful to heal or to do good. Would you rescue an injured animal on the Sabbath? He healed the woman with the bent back, said that they would rather give their animals a drink than heal the daughter of Abraham who was there with them. He asked a very simple question, can I do good on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Can I save a life or destroy? Not meant to be hard questions, right? He's not, these aren't supposed to be challenges. But what we can look at, and we can say that he is making good theological arguments for why he has authority and why he's acting the way he does. But before we even go there, because we can just grant, Jesus can do what Jesus wants to do. Why does he keep doing it? Because at this point, it's clearly deliberate. He's poking the bear of the Pharisees over and over. Because it's not as though he must heal on the Sabbath. There's nothing commanding him that he has to heal on the Sabbath. And I think Jesus, you look at it, you could say, Jesus, you could save yourself a lot of political trouble just by waiting till Monday to make this point. Or to quote Paul later, all things are lawful, but are they beneficial? All things are lawful, but do they build up? Talk to Jesus and say, maybe we could go about the same work. We could just do it in a little bit clearer of a way. Why, are, why do you have to always rile? This week's passage in particular feels like such an obvious trap that you'd think, if I were to give advice to Jesus, not that he's asking me, by the way, but if I were to, I might say that just today, we should cool it. Let's just have a nice dinner. We can smooth things over. We can clear up some misunderstandings. Move, maybe move on. There's a million people out there that we could heal. Let's just pass on this one. Thinking this way though, the way I'm inclined to think, the way we might be inclined to think, mistakes Jesus' intent. Why is he there? He is compelled to heal the man in the room with him. But not only that. He is also compelled to try one more time to teach the Pharisees the lesson about what they could see if only their pride and their arrogance weren't seated at the table between them and Jesus. He is trying to show them a, another lesson that they keep missing. This brings us to point two, the arrogant humbled. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't sit in the place of honor because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then, in humiliation, you proceed to take the lowest place. So, after healing the man, and one thing that I think is interesting, you saw Jesus heals the man and sends him out. So it's almost like Jesus heals the person and then turns his direction right on the Pharisees and says, we need to talk about what just happened. 
and we're not, he's not gonna be involved, this is between you and me. We're gonna actually learn something about this. He tells him a story about a wedding feast. And it's probably good. He's in a different mood than he was last week when he called them all hypocrites because it keeps this dinner from going too far off the rails. He's actually there teaching them. And uh, in a dinner like this, uh, with Jesus attending, it's pretty normal for a Jewish dinner. Everyone would be sitting in a giant U shape, right? And the person of honor sits at the head of that U. And it is, you go in descending honor around the outsides of the table. So that the far end of the U, way over there, that's the person who is the least important at the party. In a situation like that, you can imagine if someone wormed their way up to try and get as close to the host as possible, they might be asked, whoa, hey, move. I actually had some other friends that were gonna sit there and then you'd have to awkwardly scooch your way down the others, other end of the table and just say, okay, I'll be over here. Just let me know if you need me. Um, for modern context, I think it'd be similar to like a wedding banquet uh, at the reception when you actually have the head table where the, that is exclusively served for the wedding party. And then if you yourself were to go in and sit at that head table, and then you'd find yourself in a really rough position once the DJ starts announcing all the names of the party coming in and they come up to the seat that you're sitting in and you have to, in front of everybody, go sit at the round tables with everyone else. We can understand that there's some kind of visceral level of embarrassment in that situation. Uh, I, but I, I can't imagine that Jesus is just trying to tell them social etiquette. Like he, he can't see everything that's going on with this false situation that's been set up and then say, you know what the Pharisees need most? How to not embarrass themselves at a dinner. That's what I'll tell them. That'll be my main point. Then they'll get it. Then they'll accept the son of man into their midst. I don't think he's trying to get that because this is Jesus we're talking about. He has never had any issues stepping into an awkward social situation. This is the man who got up in front of a crowd like we talked about and gave a sermon about himself and then sat down. He sleeps in the hull of a boat during a storm and then chastises his disciples for being worried that the ship was gonna sink. And just now, right now, he healed somebody while he is an invited guest at a Pharisee's house when he could have just let the matter go away but he rather chose to walk right into it, to press right into the awkward situation. So I don't think social grace is the Lord's concern. I think he might have something else in mind because we already know some of the things that Jesus does on the Sabbath. He does good. He saves life. And he rescues and we also know how desperately he desires for the children of Israel to be gathered again. Remember, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I longed to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. He has healed the man of his illness. He is seeking to heal the Pharisees of theirs, which is to say, heal them of their crushing and stubborn pride. Jonathan Edwards says this about pride. He's writing to Christians, but I think it's pretty easy to slide that context over and see how this could be true to the Pharisees. The first and worst cause of errors that abound in our day and age is spiritual pride. 
This is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. Pride is the main handle by which he has hold of Christian persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. Spiritual pride is the main spring or at least the main support of all other errors. Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. You don't have to listen to Jonathan Edwards about it. Book of Proverbs says, everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. So why then can we accuse the Pharisees of pride, of arrogance? You don't just need to look at this passage, right? You can actually look uh, at the very way the synagogue, synagogue leaders act around Jesus. Their pride is evident in the way they conduct themselves in everything. Look at their duplicity. They are silent in the face of simple questions that Jesus asked them because the answer would be to concede the argument. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Please, that's not supposed to be a hard question. They can't answer him. They have no answer for Jesus on where he gets his power to heal and drive out demons. If you remember, at first they tried to say he got the power from Satan himself. He destroyed that argument and then they're just have to, they just have to assume nothing. What? Where's he getting his power from? They know he's doing things. But if they say God is giving him the power, which is the only other option that they have available to them, then that means that they would have to rethink their own power, their own authority. So they don't do it. They just, again, remain silent in the face of obvious truth. And they are overly concerned with the appearance of spirituality. But they're far removed from the needs of the people that they are called to look after. Not once, not once have we seen them rejoice when Jesus heals someone because he's making them look bad. They actually can see the work of God being done in front of them and they can't give any credit to it because to do so would mean that they would have to rethink their own lives and their own authority. They are compromised. Have you ever felt that? Like when you see somebody rejoicing, the Lord has done something nice in somebody else's life and you just can't bring yourself to be as enthusiastic as you should because it would mean that you have to humble yourself. That's me, plenty. It might just be me. But I don't think this is a problem particular to the Pharisees. I think we have this problem now. And it manifests itself in different ways. We don't repent from sin to God or to others because it would mean tearing down our own self-worth and our own idolatry. We don't reconcile our broken relationships because to do so would be to release feelings of emotion, feelings and emotions that give us a sense of power. We look at God, I say we, believers, people of the faith, look at God and we say you can take your kingdom this far in my life and no further, 
because I must remain king of something, somewhere. And even though we're all good Christians, right? If you are walking in this room, you have probably heard that we are justified, we are saved by grace through faith and that it is not of ourselves, but God who works in us, who works and wills for his good purpose. But if we're honest, right? We know that, we'll pass that on a theological test, but I'm still taking all my good works and I'm gonna put them in a pile and I'm gonna go find some room and I'm just gonna look at them, you know? I'm gonna look at them and I'm gonna say, all right, I did okay. In the end, we want God to love us, not just because of Jesus Christ and what he has done, but I want him to love me more because I was a good husband or a good father or an elder of the church or a kind and loving wife or you know, a, an obedient child. That if I do those things, surely God will love me more. Surely he'd be unfair to me if he didn't give me credit for those small works of righteousness. I'm sure leaders in the synagogue felt the same way. Here's another one. You might have a pride issue if you can invite God himself into your home for dinner but you're watching him closely to make sure he's on his best behavior. That's what's going on here tonight. Jesus is giving the Pharisees a parable about themselves. That night, that dinner, you have invited the man who is performing miracles in your synagogues, who is healing people in your streets, who is giving hope to thousands, but you wanna make sure that he knows that you still sit at the head of the table. Jesus says specifically about the Pharisees in Matthew. This is in Matthew 23. Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it. Don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and they put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at banquets and the front seat in the synagogues, greeting, greetings in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by the people. I should probably explain what a phylactery is. Um, a phylactery is actually a, uh, it's something that the Jewish people would wear. It, was, it is a box that goes right on your forehead. You'd wear it during your morning prayers and it would remind you of the laws that you were under. And you're, the larger the phylactery that you're wearing on your head, oh man, the more aware you are of the laws that you are to obey. In fact, they might get so big that you need to wear them on your elbows too, just to remind yourself that much more of the law that you are following. It's like bringing a very large study Bible with you wherever you can and making sure people see it because you're very smart. I've done this. I had an ESV study Bible, bright white and orange, couldn't miss it. Like if I walked around a corner, it would hit people before I would. Um, uh, you do this, my wife met me while I was carrying it. I had that, I had a copy of Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. I was, man, I was so cool back then. Uh, you know, it's, we, we do these things in other ways. Look at my righteousness. Look at what I do. But he's looking at the Pharisees and he sees them. He, they're seated in the chair of Moses, meaning they're seated in the seat of judgment over the people. 
But they've gone a step further than that. They're sitting in the chair of God himself, putting loads and burdens on people that they cannot bear, that the Pharisees themselves can't bear. They've just exempted them from the work. And they are imprisoned by a pride that will not let them admit the truth, even though they know it. It's not a secret. They see what God has done. It's nothing but the strange patience of God that he doesn't just crush them all. Like, I mean, seriously, the, the hubris. Remember, back in Luke 7, there's a Roman centurion and he had a servant who was ill. And he sent, he sent some of his people to go talk to Jesus to say, can you come and heal him? While Jesus is on the way, the, the centurion says, don't trouble yourself because I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. A Roman centurion, he understands what, what Jesus is about. He doesn't know the whole picture, but he certainly knows that he is a man of God doing remarkable things. He understands more about the, the nature of who Christ is than the Pharisees who should have been on the lookout for it. Jesus says, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. But you see what his faith is linked to? It's linked to humility. Jesus equates his humility to say, God, you don't even deserve to come to my house and calls that faith. And whatever that is, it is the opposite of what the Pharisees are doing in their house this night. Personally for them, uh, fortunately for them, our God is a God who does practice what he teaches. Because the reason, does not, the reason that Jesus does not counter their hubris with some mighty display of his power, because he could, is because of the last portion of this text. Because Jesus knows that the humble are exalted and he is humbling himself to the point of self-abasement. Last section. When you are invited, but when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You will then be honored in the presence of the other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is our model of humility. I wanna come back to the point again about why Jesus keeps doing things like healing on the Sabbath, even when it causes him what a lot of us might call personal difficulty. And I think it's, it's largely due to the fact that personal difficulty is not a part of his calculus in determining what decisions he makes and what he does and does not do. We see him motivated by compassion. We see him motivated when others display faith and humility. And when you look at both of those things, we see him chiefly motivated by seeing God's will acted out and his kingdom advanced. That is Jesus's standard operating procedure. It's also why he will consistently do things like heal on the Sabbath in front of the Pharisees because he values compassion and godliness more than he values his own reputation or more than he values keeping peace with a hostile and deceived crowd. He would see God's will done even to his own detriment. But before we get there, what is God's definition of humility? What would he have us be like? What's a humble person? 
think uh, Tim Keller says humility is a tricky thing because the moment you mention it, it runs away. There's a false notion out there, I think, that uh, humility is to be in some state of constant mourning where we just value and esteem ourselves very little and that we're constantly working to remind ourselves that we are low. But that's not exactly how you see Jesus acting. I mean, there is a humility in how he's acting, but that's not, that's not his angle. It's not, that's not accurate to the whole picture. You know, there's, our pride can be broken, we can be humiliated, but that doesn't necessarily mean that our next step is being humble. Because you see the Pharisees as recently as Luke 13 were humiliated because Jesus outsmarted them. Quote, all his adversaries were humiliated. They were humiliated though because their arrogance was affronted. They lost an argument publicly, but they're still basing their own status and their own prestige as their key parts of their identity. Which is true in some of these false humilities where we keep the focus on ourselves. Our own image is still our idol. It's just not a victorious image, but a woe is me image. I think C.S. Lewis says it more clearly. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Proverbs says, when arrogance comes, disgrace follows, but with humility comes wisdom. So humility is a characteristic that is in line with God's priorities and purposes. So as you move, as a humble person moves in life, they stop calculating their status completely. You're neither haughty and prideful nor lowly and self-absorbed. You're simply unconcerned with yourself because humility allows us to start outsourcing where our worth comes from and to trust it to another. And where does our worth come from? Christ alone. What does Christ command us? We will continue, this is from Matthew, right after the last section that we just finished reading. But you are not to be called rabbi because you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. Do not call anyone on earth your father because you have one father who is in heaven. You're not to be called instructors either because you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Same exact words, same exact point. You see what Jesus is saying to his followers? Throw away the labels you're using purely to elevate your own status. We're doing, this because our, uh, uh, we're doing this because as our mind is being transformed, we are to increasingly consider God's status and opinion and the status he bestows. So don't attach yourself to a label as a teacher. There's only one teacher. Don't attach yourself to the label of father because there's only one good father. And who's our instructor? The Messiah himself. And this is true for us elders too, right? I, listen, I, they gave me the title, I didn't demand it, but they gave me the title elder, but that doesn't mean anything, like in terms of my status before the Lord. It means, if anything, if we're doing our jobs well, that we are servants, servants to the body, humbly pointing people towards Christ. That is true of anything. That dinner that I, that I was talking about earlier with all the fancy people from other countries, None of them impressed the Lord based upon their status. 
Not one. It's not, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is to start thinking of yourself not at all, to count yourself as nothing, right? That's what Jesus is doing. His only question is, what must I do to act out the will of God in my life and in the people around me? That's what Christ is doing. And he is kind enough to model this humility for us, even though he himself is worthy of all accolades. He's worthy of the best seat in the house and of all the riches that we could give him. He, in his patience, submitted himself to be lectured by know-nothing blind Pharisees who wouldn't recognize God if they stumbled over him, which, in fact, they did. And it's because of this that God himself, taking on flesh and subjecting himself to all the temptations and trials of human life, that he who suffered the greatest humiliation would, true to God's word, true to this passage, soon receive the greatest exaltation. Winston Churchill has this funny line. He was once asked, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech that the hall is packed to overflowing? Um, he, uh, he, said, he replied, it's quite flattering. But whenever I feel that way, I always remember that if instead of making a political speech, I was being hanged, the crowd would be twice as big. That's just Churchill's attempt at humor, but there's an ironic truth in what Christ is about to do. Jesus, as Lawson reminded us, has his face set towards Jerusalem. God in the flesh who existed before the creation of the world and who knows the number of hairs on each of his accusers' heads is on a mission wherein he will continue to provoke the arrogant and be arrested on false charges and tried in a mock trial he will submit himself to a slaughter at the hands of people he himself knit together in their own mother's wombs. God will do this. He will do it willingly. He will invite scorn and shame such that his own family and friends will not want to look at him. And the least deserving will become the most punished. Philippians 2 says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is fitting and interesting, we talked Adam and Eve and that story that pride was the root of all the sin in the world. Take and eat of this fruit, you will be like God. It only makes sense then that it took a greater act of humility to undo it. Hebrews 12, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, uh, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus didn't even take the worst seat at the banquet. He's not even at the table. He has instead taken a cross outside on a hill. And the most punished, the most humbled, will become the most exalted. And Christ's ultimately, ultimate humility led to his ultimate exaltation. Somehow, 
in a much greater fashion than Winston Churchill, his own death has drawn a greater crowd to see and savor God's glory than any righteous life ever lived. And by taking our eyes off of ourselves and fixing them on Jesus and what he has done, we too can follow this same route by laying aside our pride and following him into glory. It is through this that we will ultimately have a seat at the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb because Christ has taken our lowly estate and elevated us in his righteousness. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I pray for us now that our posture is consistently, always and often, to esteem ourselves, to value ourselves, to long for the opinions of others, to desire attention, to desire glory, and to hog it as often as we can for ourselves. I pray, Lord, that you would break those things down and may we look at Christ. I pray that this church, that these people, that I myself, we would see that we could walk in freedom freedom that is unconcerned of our reputations and freedom that is unconcerned about what people think as long as we ultimately are seeking after you, desiring your approval, desiring what you desire. Lord, we know that you could do these things in us. We ask that you would for your glory. Lord, we ask that you would do these things so that we could see you more truly and worship you more fully. We thank you for Christ, who is our example. The example that we don't deserve because we would sooner have you in our home and judge you rather than understand that we are unworthy for you even to come under our roof. So we thank you for consenting even to this, even for us now. We ask this all in Christ's name, amen.